Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode three of series eight of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. COVID-19 is changing our world irrevocably. First and foremost, it is a health crisis. People are getting sick, families are losing loved ones, and the virus is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. In the words of this week's guest, coronavirus might also be the great catalyst for business transformation. What previously was expected to develop over the course of several years is instead unfolding before our very eyes in the course of a few months. If the future of work requires restructured workplaces, redefined roles, rapid learning, and reserves of trust, and it does, organizations are being challenged to do all that and more as they address the coronavirus pandemic. Those are the words of this week's guest, future of the work strategist, Heather McGowan, whose new book, The Adaptation Advantage, co-authored with Chris Shipley, has just been released. I first met Heather at the Unleashed show in Paris last year and was blown away by the quality of her research and the underlying premise of the need for continuous learning. An authority such as Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman frequently quotes Heather in his books and columns and describes her as the oasis when it comes to insights into the future of work. So I know you will enjoy listening to Heather in the next 40 minutes or so. In our conversation, Heather and I discuss why COVID-19 is acting as the catalyst for business transformation and the future of work. We look at the pivotal role of culture and how leadership styles will adapt in the future of work. We talk about how we need to embrace and absorb new skills and let go of old ones. And we also look at why our old measure of potential success, IQ, has given way to EQ and is now shifting yet again to AQ, or Adaptability Quotient. And finally, we also look at why the role of HR needs to evolve and what HR leaders need to do differently. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in the future shape of organisations and how to create a culture of continuous learning. So CHROs, Chief Learning Officers and anyone in a people analytics, HR business partner, HR strategy or talent acquisition role. Also, to celebrate one year of the podcast, we thought we'd tell you a little bit more about our company Insight 222. We set up Insight 222 to help our clients put people analytics at the centre of business. Insight 222 is a global professional services firm providing leading edge consulting, learning, networking and advisory services that enable organisations to deliver business value through people analytics and data-driven HR. Interacting directly with Chief Human Resources Officers and their key staff in people analytics, strategy, planning and digital HR Our clients and partners include 70 of the world's leading organisations. If you want to find out more, please visit insight222.com or get in touch directly with me. So today I'm delighted to welcome Heather McGowan, future of work strategist, lecturer, author, and speaker to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Heather, it's great to see you all the way from Boston, I think. Welcome to the show. Um, can you provide listeners with a, a quick introduction to, to you and your background and, and current activities? Yeah, it's great to see you again. It's uh, it's so rare that in, in the world of constant Zooms, I'm actually Zooming with someone I met just three or four months ago in Paris. So it's good to see you again. Um, my name is Heather McGowan. Um, my co-author, Chris Shipley, and I wrote the book, The Adaptation Advantage, Let Go, Learn Fast to Thrive in the Future Work, which came out in April from uh, Wiley. And it's really geared towards 
how do we get people in a mode of constant adaptation and learning as opposed to downloading a singular skill set for a singular job? Well, great. And I know we're going to talk uh, a lot about the book. You kindly sent me a, a, a version that I've been poring over and, and, and uh, scholaring up on, as it were. Um, let's start by going beyond the headline that, that robots will take away our jobs, which we do see a lot of, maybe not so much during the current crisis, but, but certainly in the last few years. In your book, you, you highlight technology, invisibility and visibility as the key agents of change. You know, what do you mean by this? And what is it that's actually changing and precipitating the fourth industrial revolution and the future of work? Yeah, so Tom Friedman had made a, a, a whole list of things that were going to change with uh, data, technology, AI, etc. And I added to his list uh, visibility and invisibility. And because I think that what data does and automated technology more broadly is it can make some things we used to do invisible. So if your lights come on at a certain time in your house automatically, and if your temperature changes when you walk in the room or your car knows that you've got to get to a meeting, so your watch reminds you that the traffic's going to take 35 minutes back when we used to go out, um, that stuff is suddenly things invisibly happening for you. Um, stuff that becomes visible is starting to understand, like we're doing right now with contact tracing, that we're seeing quarantine fatigue because we know by cellular data, more people are moving and more people are getting close to people they weren't getting close to before. And so that's how it makes invisible stuff now visible. And actually, you, you, you talked about Tom Friedman. I mean, he wrote the foreword to, to the book and um, he had his lovely line in there, your next job starts where the robots stop, um, in which kind of talks to that, that, that kind of the lazy headlines that we see. And, and it really is about, humans augmenting uh, technology rather than being replaced by them. That's that's kind of the, some of the ethos in the book. Yes, for sure. So one of the things that we, Chris and I also point out in the book is that not only is technology going to consume some routine and predictable tasks, which it will and already has. Um, let's, you know, if I took your phone, wiped out your contact list and hand it back to you, how many people could you call? Your childhood home phone number, maybe your Zero. parents. Yeah. <laughs> A handful, right? But 10 years ago, which is not long ago, I remember I remembered about 25, 30 phone numbers off the top of my head. Now I can't remember four digits because we've outsourced that piece of technology. And that's fine. Same with navigation. We don't pull out maps anymore unless we're going on a really exciting road trip. Otherwise, we pretty much let technology drive us where we're going and reroute us around tra traffic. Um, but what technology can also do is show us opportunity. So in the book, we interview uh, Frida Polly from Pymetrics. We also speak to Joanna Daly from IBM about how both of them are using, as well as Michael Predis from Paytham, are using technologies to help people understand disruptions before they happen, and then how equipped people are to pivot to the next closest available job based upon their skill sets and perhaps their interests. So that's one way the robots are letting go where we take over. Now, you've, your book has come out in the midst of the biggest global pandemic for a century. And we were joking last week that what you envisage happening in the next three to five years is actually happening in three, in three to five weeks, I think. Yes, I? I, I actually just want to point this out. So we picked this book. And if you look at that image, we just wanted to look like an image of blasting light and things moving really quickly. But it also looks like a virus. And that wasn't planned because we didn't know. And the adaptation advantage was one of many titles we went through, but that's so almost prescient for right now because that's what we're doing at scale. You must have had a crystal ball. I mean, 
I mean, how might, um, and I know you've written this, how might COVID-19 be the great catalyst for, for business transformation and the future of work? Is, first of all, I want to say it's a horrible disease that is taking many lives, putting people who weren't at risk before suddenly at risk. So I don't take it lightly when I say it accelerates no, no, the future work. So I, I, yeah, I want, to, I want to be sure about that. We're in a world of heart from lives to livelihoods. It's going to take a very long time to recover, particularly those livelihoods. But on the, the silver lining in there, and I think there are a number of silver linings in the, in the virus, uh, if you can absorb the the horrific loss of lives and livelihoods. Um, it's forcing us to transform to digital at light speed. And I was looking at, across the dimensions of who works, where we work, how we work, and what we do. BC, before coronavirus, two weeks into it, we had transformed every office organization that we could to remote oh. working, to virtual, to, to virtual organization. Every K-12 university system we could was teaching online. And faculty members who said they'd never do it were doing it and succeeding. And leaders who said, I don't really want my teams working at home, were surprised to find if they let them work at home and they trust them, they're getting this sort of trust premium out of it. So we, the trans, transformation of digital, which is really just a human transformation, was accelerated uh, by the virus. And you, I think in one of the other the same article in Forbes, actually, and when we spoke last week, actually, you described the pandemic as the third existential threat of our lifetimes. You know, what are what are the other two and how can we kind of try and solve them together? So our lifetimes, I'm in full disclosure, just turned 49 last month. So as I, as I look at sort of like a 50 year window or 60, 70 year window, something like that, what a lifetime used to be. And yeah. in our lifetimes, um, we've had about 50 years of concrete data that human activities are warming the planet, leading to biodiversity loss, uh, warming climate, more superstorms, more droughts, more th uh, floods, more wildfires, changing settlement patterns, potentially creating as many as 143 million climate refugees in the next decade or so. So the first existential crisis is climate change. And Despite having uh, James at uh, NASA telling us in 1988 and Al Gore in the early 2000s and Greta, we've had plenty of warnings. Uh, we've made them people of the year. You know, we've shined a spotlight as much as we can. We still have not changed human behaviors in a, in a meaningful way the way we need to. So we're sort of failing at climate change. The second is income inequality. I, I was born in 1971. Since about 1970, income inequality has skyrocketed particularly in the developed countries, um, not so much in the developing countries, particularly in the U.S., where we have the highest level of income inequality that we've had since, 19, since the 1920s. And that's gone up under Republican and Democrat, so it's not a political thing at all. Um, but in this moment, that income inequality is laid bare. It's like Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And we're naked. You know, we have not done a good enough job. We have kind of paid attention to unemployment rates but not underemployment rates and not labor force participation rates. Because if you were born in 1940, you had a 90% chance of doing better than your parents. If you were born in 1980, you had a 50% chance. So we don't have the social mobility we once have. So in this moment, we have the opportunity when we start to restart the economy and unfreeze some aspects of you know, our society to be intentional and insistent that we cross that raging river, which is what I'm referring to the virus has, in creating pathways that unleash more human potential. And we do so in a way that's better for the planet. So if more of us work from home, 
some days a week, all the time, whatever it is, we're reducing carbon emissions. Uh, um, if we produce goods more lo- more goods locally, use 3D printing, other options that we have to restart the economy in a way that's better for the planet. And then if we create massive reskilling and upskilling, because in the U.S., the 30 some odd million jobs that are lost, some of them aren't coming back. They're not. So we need to prepare people for what's ahead in a way for them to contribute in a more meaningful way. So I see the virus as the catalyst that solves all three. Yeah, and it's interesting about income inequality, because if we actually look back just 10 years to the last crisis that we had, very different type of crisis, obviously, you know, the actual inequality levels have grown. I'm I'm talking about my country in the UK, and I know it's the same in the US. and, And we almost missed an opportunity there to try and solve some of those problems around income inequality and as you said no one's done anything about the the climate crisis which you know arguably is the biggest of the of, of all of them so um so so yeah i mean maybe i mean you know i was reading something this morning around how this is actually you know, i think it was a mckinsey piece actually saying it was this is an opportunity for airlines to actually start looking at carbon free um fuels and stuff like that now you know now that you know They've got a moment to breathe. Maybe it's not a great moment for them, but you know, it's it, it it does it does seem to be this. And sometimes it takes a crisis to to try and create change, doesn't it? So, you know, yeah, I, I share your hope that this will be time that we do try and tackle these. I guess one of the problems about all of those issues are they're quite lot. They're certainly the two of them. They're very long term, and we have a political system that's very short term. Um, you know, whether it's a term of four or five years and you know, whether it's about, you know, in the US trying to be reelected or then about the people's legacy, they, they're not really, the system's not designed to solve long, long-term long problems, is it? No, and maybe it takes place in business and at local governments and not at federal governments. And maybe it's companies that are either not public or play by different rules in the public markets because business, I'm not anti-business at all. I'm very pro-business. Um, business scale solutions. We need business. Um, but if, from an income inequality standpoint, if you look at the economy, you look at the research that World Economic Forum did, in the developed worlds, when you have more income inequality, you have slower GDP growth. So we're not going to grow in the way that we measure growth if we become more and more unequal. We've talked a little bit about the scale of the challenge, but how much harder has the crisis made it? And I know we were talking last week about some things that this might precipitate you know like settlement patterns um it's real estate um you know strategies with, with big companies what are some of the things that you're you're already seeing well i'm you know twitter just announced uh, yesterday the day before work from home forever uh facebook and google i think have said till the end of the year i think it would be helpful for folks out there if you can make a declaration as to how much longer this will go on concrete you'd really help your workers because i i know i'm speaking to a lot of folks at different companies who are saying well, they don't know. I might have to go back to, and some people don't live near where they work, where they have to move back to another city. Uh, so there are implications there. But I'm also seeing um, discussions about like, how do you make safe places? Because we can't live in our house in a bubble for years. Um, maybe this is a way we, we work reinvents itself, that they make safe space pod offices that allow us to get out uh, see other people from a social distance, work in a different place, and then come home a couple days a week and they clean them or something. Um, because I don't, I, I know that the virus is going to be here longer than uh, our ability to handle it psychologically. So we have to come up with some ways to kind of release the pressure. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, there has been a move of people to the cities. You know, I've speak, you know, I was speaking to a couple of young professionals I know that they're in London. 
they live together, they live with two other people, um, and suddenly they're all working from home. You know, it's not quite what they wanted when they moved into moved to the big city, and you know, and, and it, it's making them think. You know, after the after this, do we want to live in London? You know, and and yeah. you know, and then obviously companies. They go where their talent is. So if you want particular skills, you set up big offices in, in big, big cities, which are very expensive offices to maintain. You know, is this, you know, could this be a big change? Yeah. And I have talked to some very, very large companies in different parts of the world who are saying we're rethinking our real estate investment more broadly because do we need these massive uh, buildings? And then that allows you to look at secondary cities and rural areas where on an income inequality standpoint, it'd be fantastic because then you can be located anywhere, uh, anywhere you can get broadband access and you can travel a couple times a year, a couple times a month, whatever it's needed to an office to meet with people. And that does bring a question I think we haven't answered yet. Why do we get together? Why do we get together in person? I think it's important. I think it's important that we see each other, we hug each other. I don't know that we'll ever shake hands again. But there's something about being in the same space that's different than this virtual thing. So we have to think about not just defaulting to drive to an office, sit at a desk, and then dial into what would be the equivalent of Zooms in, in a collective space, but think about why we come together and make that and the office design much more intentional. If we think not just at the crisis, but also beyond the crisis, and we look towards the future, you know, certainly... Um, the ideas that that are in the book and and the evidence actually from from all the interviews that you've done around the world and and what you've observed, you know, how big is the challenge um, that we've got the adaptation advantage and, and are we ready for it? I think the answer to are we ready for it, I can answer better now than I could when I handed in the manuscript because the virus has showed us how highly, highly adaptable we actually are. You know, in two weeks to to remap your supply chains and pivot your product lines, which is the, the, the most of the change happened in the first two weeks. We're at like 60 some odd days now. But when I gave one of my uh, first major talks two weeks in, I made a list of, of all the stuff we've changed and how quickly folks who had been resistant to adaptation uh, ended up embracing it and surprising themselves. So I think we're highly adaptive in, the, in, the, in that way. The virus has also been a silver lining. But what we need to change is our kind of fixation on occupational identity and driving toward the future self. So one of the things we bring up in the book is we ask young kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? Absurd question. Absurd. Uh, We ask university students to pick a major before they step foot on campus. And there are huge social mobility implications to that because you pick based on what you're told you're good at in high school, very thin slice of life. If I was limited to that, we wouldn't be talking about, you know, um, What your parents do, huge social mobility implications because you can only imagine what you've seen and sometimes what's on TV. Because when like CSI boomed in the US, we had a surge in forensic scientists. Uh, We hopefully will have a surge in healthcare practitioners right now because we do have aging societies in most of the developed world and we need that. Um, So we ask all those questions and then you look at what are those first thing we ask each other, what do you do? Um, job loss takes twice as long to recover from than the loss of a primary relationship because you've lost everything that you are. And our systems are to drive you towards a singular point in space um, at a time that your career arc is going to be longer and much more volatile. So one of the main arguments of the book is we need to go back and focus on what are you inherently interested in? What are you curious about? Because that's your fuel source for lifelong learning, and we're all going to have to learn and adapt for life. And then so you take, you start 
learn to nurture your curiosity, your purpose, and your passion, and then learn to pay attention to what you're good at and constantly adding to it. That puts us all in a position of better adaptation. And then companies have to define themselves by their culture first, why they exist, how the world looks differently, what they will and won't do to, to achieve their uh, vision and, and, and mission, and then focus on constantly increasing their capacities. And one of the examples we use, I use in my talks, I think we used in the book, was Netflix. Yeah. 1997, Netflix shipped DVDs by mail. If they define themselves by that and built a culture around that and only building capacity around that, they wouldn't have been able to make the pivot in 2007 to streaming and then in 2011 to original content, which is now, as of the end of 2019, 44% of their revenues. So a business model has more agility if it's defined by culture and increasing capacity. Individuals focused on their own uh, values, purpose, and then expanding their capacity to create alignment, and then we can move together. Yeah, it's interesting. We had, um, and I know we all met when we were in Paris, actually, Peter Hinton on the on the show a few weeks ago, and he was talking about these Phoenix organizations that have this ability to, to, to reinvent themselves, Walmart being a, a good example. And actually, what I see from, from reading your book, it's, it's actually about, it's not just about companies, it's about people as well. As you, as you said, it's lifelong learning. Actually, the big challenge isn't necessarily an automation one. It's a skills challenge, isn't it? Because the half-life of skills is dropping significantly. I pulled out a lovely stat from your book um, from IBM that said the skills gap was uh, was around four days of training, or average skill gap was around four days of training in 2014. By 2018, it was 36 days of training, which is staggering. Um, so it, it's, it's a skills challenge, and it's that, as you said, it's that need for us to reinvent ourselves on a continuous basis. Yes. And we were at the, we were together in Paris in my keynote there. I said, learning was the new pension. Because if you look at how you make your money every day, I'm using U.S. figures here, but 7 to 15 cents I make every day or one makes every day, we're really making to put away for retirement. But we don't think about our time similarly. And that 4 to 36 days is something like 12 to 15 percent of your time about an hour, an hour and a half a day. We're not doing it now. And then fast forward, it's going to be 30 to 45% of your time of learning every day. Does that mean we're going to work half a day and learn half a day? No, learning is part of work now. And it needs to continue to be part of work and recognized as part of work because we're all should be constantly upskilling and reskilling every day, not when you're out of a job because your job's moving. Your company's moving. If it's not, it's not going to survive. If you're not, you're not going to survive. Yeah. Completely agree. So before we start looking at organizations, because the third, there's your book's in three parts, and I'll let you explain that in a minute. But there's one part dedicated around organizations, which I think we can delve into a little bit deeper. But firstly, what what do you mean by the adaptation advantage? And, and what is it that needs to change? Well, for, for individuals and for organizations, and when you look at it, organizations are just collections of individuals. We all need to not be set by how we define ourselves and what we do, whether it's a company defining itself solely by its brand and products, which are just exhaust from its learning and evidence of their culture, and individuals by your title and your processes and the way you've always done it and how you define yourself, those are limiting factors. In the past, that was it was okay because that lasted the career arc and that lasted the lifespan of a company. But if you look at the InnoSight research based on the S&P 500, company um, time on the S&P 500 is shrinking rapidly. So not only are products and services and business models not lasting as long, whole companies are not lasting as long. And we're going to have more jobs, whether it's within an organization or across organizations, 
over a career arc that's probably a decade longer now because of human longevity. So one of the things I talk about is, you know, the career arc is longer and more volatile. So you can't spend that first portion of your life learning on a single point in space because that point in space is probably not going to be there or not look like it did when you started. And then you're going to have to rapidly adapt. So the advantage on adaptation is your ability to be agile. And in this moment, the companies that are doing really well, some of them are lucky because they're in areas that we need right now, like Zoom. um, Others are pivoting rapidly. I have a friend who owns a trade show company and, you know, her business was just obliterated. And she said, well, I just stopped and said, what are we good at? Where's the need and how quickly can we get there? And they refigured. They're looking at all sorts of things from helping build testing facilities to building face shields and, and they're, they're surviving and thriving. And that's what it's going to take. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the crisis is definitely accelerating the demise of some industries uh, or, 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 or vocations and accelerating the others. It's, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's forced. It's not good. Um, so it is the crisis is, you know, is accelerating that forced transformation of business and the way we work, you know, which was probably going to happen anyway, but, you know, so what is the role of, 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 we're going to look at culture and leadership. So firstly, culture, what is the role of culture um, in, in the adaptation advantage? You know, I know you, you pay particular importance to this from an organization. Yeah, so when your product lasted decades to the lifespan of your company, you didn't have to pay attention as your culture as much. But when your product's going to change and your customers might change and your business model might change, what do you hold on to as your touchstone? And what you hold on to as your touchstone is why you exist in the first place. What, what's your point of existing in the world? Why does the world look differently because you exist? And what will or won't you do in the, in the pursuit of your, your vision and mission, which is our, are the first two questions I asked? And how do people get attracted to your organization is it's with values alignment. You know, I'm working with this organization because they believe what I believe. And they hired me because I had one of the skill sets they needed. They also hired me because they understood I was interested in constantly upgrading my skill sets to meet the needs of their changing business models. There's a journey that can take place together. But if it's a company that defines itself on its brand and products today and seeking only the skills they needed, probably for the last person who did the job, that's driving looking in the rearview mirror. And now the car is going a lot faster very dangerous. We need to fix our gaze out on the horizon as to why do we exist? What will and what we do? What are we, what impact are we trying to make in the world? So we attract people to our shared mission and we'll go on these learning tours together. And the same is true around leadership. I mean, how are and how will leadership or how much they need to, how do leadership styles need to evolve? Um, leadership was uh, not that long ago about driving productivity because you were you picked a business model and you just scaled it. Um, John Hagel refers to that as the scalable efficiency era. And he says, now we're in the scalable learning era. And I very much agree with him, quote him many times in the book uh, as well. So if you're a leader in the scalable learning era, what do you need to be to really learn? You need to be comfortable being vulnerable. You need to be comfortable saying, I don't know. So if you're leading teams of people into the unknown and sometimes into the unknown unknowns, as, as uh, one of, that's one of Peter's expressions, um, you need to get a, team of, a group of people with whom you can establish psychological safety, where it's comfortable for people to say, I don't know, um, let's find out, I'm concerned I don't know enough about this, I made a mistake about that, we need to address it. Because if you're a leader leading folks into the unknown unknowns and you're concealing things you don't know, 
hiding insecurities, you're signaling that to everybody on your team. That's a disaster waiting to happen. But if you can establish trust, psychological safety, dependability and accountability, everybody on the team has to show up, um, have shared meaning around the mission and shared purpose with the individuals. That's uh, what Google found in their project Aristotle were the most impact, important feet, uh, factors in accelerated learning, team learning. And for leaders, and we quote Brene Brown in there as well, of course, she's been championing vulnerability for a long time. Vulnerability is key. And it's really key right now when you can't sort of be on top of all your people because your only connection to them is Zoom, you have to connect with them on a human level. You have to establish trust. You have to establish psychological safety. You have to believe them and have them believe in you. And it's a shift in leadership that we've needed for a long time. And I think it's one that's going to be a, kind of a great error in our next uh, period of business from sort of the shareholder value era to the human capital era. And we're seeing it playing out a little bit on the political stage at the moment with different leaders, because I guess they're very exposed by this particular crisis. And we're seeing certain leadership styles that seem to be having better results than others. We don't need to get into the politics, otherwise we could be here all night. But and, <laughs> and in the in the book, you talk about a shift from 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 IQ to to EQ and then to what you call a AQ, um, a, a, a adaptability quotient. You want to, I think our listeners would be really interested in understanding that a little bit, actually. Yeah, and there have been many other champion, champions on adaptability quotient. Um, some of them I knew about, some of them I didn't. The ones I knew about, I, I quoted in the book. I was interviewed by someone a week or two ago that's got a an AI-based, um, and I'll send this in the show notes in case of interest to you guys, um, screening. Uh, for what is your adaptability quotient, which I didn't know about when I wrote the book, which was a, a pleasant discovery. Your adaptability quotient is your ability to sort of let go of some things, be vulnerable at times, be reaching up for something you don't know. Um, and it's, you know, frankly, it's hard. And it's especially hard if we live in a society of sort of absolute expertise and you know, Dunning-Kruger kind of problems on the political stage. Oh, there we go. Swimming naked again. <laughs> um, then what, you know, then again, so that looks at organizations or certainly looked at it from a culture and leadership perspective. And we've talked a little bit about this already, but what does this mean for individual workers in terms of future skills and learning um, and the importance of learning? We've talked about that, the need for it to be continuous. You know, how can organizations support workers through this and, and how much of it is the responsibility of the individual themselves? So it's both it's both the organization and the individual. It can't be on all one. We have shifted too much risk over the last couple of decades in the shareholder value era to the individual. I mean, divine contributions became defined benefits. You know, divine benefits became divine contributions uh, with the rise of the gig worker. So we've shifted a lot of the, the risk onto the individual. We need to rebalance that. Um, organizations can provide all the learning in the world, but if the individual doesn't engage, it won't matter. We all know that. So how do we shift that is we start screening people and Frida's uh, Poli stuff with Pymetrics is really interesting. Uh, start screening people on what's their propensity to learn? How much do they understand about their learning abilities and how they learn? Because you can't just jump into learning if you don't know how you take in information and how you process information. When learning was that first third of your life, you just needed to get through school. You needed to just get your degree and start working. Now learning is part of work. You need to know how you learn. Um, you need to know what motivates you. You need to have a boss or a leader who helps you with that motivation, becomes more of a coach. 
Um, and then we need to screen folks for values alignment, which is really alignment in motivation. And I guess it's about agility as well. You know, as you said, the screening people's propensity and agility to learn and also for organizations i guess it's understanding things like skills adjacency if you've got these particular skills then it's actually not such a big leap to to learn skills three and four or something and and that's very different from maybe how we've operated in the past yeah and i would i would mention that's where the visibility comes in again so the stuff that faith can do Faith AI can do, the stuff that IBM is doing, some of the stuff that I, I believe Frida is doing, will allow you to see, okay, well, you used to be an accountant and we're, I mean, we need fewer of that type of an accountant because of the way technology is taking over tasks, not jobs, but tasks. But we need many more people in cybersecurity and there's, you know, you've got 70% of the skills or 50% of the skills. So you have to shift your mindset and sort of, I am an accountant, I'm in a cybersecurity person, or maybe just don't having to have that label make it easier yeah. to, for your next pivot, and then look to start exploring that. I also mentioned AT&T in the book. They've done a massive upscaling of about 100,000 people using a somewhat similar process. Yeah, actually, that was, that was set out quite nicely for the next question I was going to ask, actually. You know, you're working with a number of organizations, and you know, can you provide an example one that is really successfully adapting? And what do you believe are their ingredients of, of success? Um, I think AT&T is a, is a really good one. It's one of the ones I use in the book. And I think they're particularly good because um, they first looked at it and said, okay, we've got about 250,000 employees. It was something on that number. Um, many of the people joined this company back when you climbed a telephone pole. I mean, you didn't have yeah. to have a degree. And so we were laying the infrastructure of the country. And now, um, you know, it, the, it's the cloud, it's cybersecurity, it's a number of other skills that we need completely different types of training. So of the 250, I think they identified about 100,000 and they said, you know, here are some jobs that you could qualify for if you went through retraining here. And they also would show you what the outlook of that job is. And one of the most interesting things I think they put in there is that the job's going to go like this and then the demand for it's going to go like that. So it showed you that it wasn't a one-time rescaling, but it's going to be a continuous rescaling. And they built a massive infrastructure to do that with, I believe it was with Georgia Tech and a few other partners. And they invested, I think, about a billion dollars. Not everybody can do that. And that's the argument I've heard from folks, like, we can't all afford to do that. Um, but there are many other ways you can you can use open source uh, MOOCs, you can use, you can tap into things. And my hope is that during this virus, we'll start knit to, knitting together some of the pieces that are out there to give more people access to, to learning so more companies can reskill rather than kind of fill and spill. Uh, when you do that, you lose a massive amount of tacit knowledge. So explicit knowledge is the stuff that can be codified. And um, that's where we tend to focus. But tacit knowledge is the stuff that's the know-how that lives in individuals and only can be transferred from human to human um, that really makes companies what they are. And we, uh, we're hemorrhaging tacit knowledge in a lot of organizations where they just sort of dump people to lunge at new skill sets. And often they're lunging at stuff they needed before but may not need in the future. It's interesting. Learning usually sits in the domain of HR. And when we, when we met at Unleash back in Paris last October. It does seem a very long time ago now. The world's changed quite a lot since. Yeah. Um, obviously, mostly that's HR professionals, HR leaders there. You know, how do you see the role of HR evolving and, and, and what do HR leaders specifically need to do differently? Uh, they need to be in the C-suite at the table with 
your, um, I think it was The Economist, and you might have pointed this out, had an article that your chief human resource officer in the virus is equivalent and perhaps maybe more important than your chief financial officer in the global um, financial crisis. I, I couldn't agree more. And before the virus, I was saying that the that the uh, HR needs to be elevated. You're the engine and the brake. At the end of the day, look at every organization. You've got infrastructure, you've got access to capital, you've got some technologies, and then you've got humans. And on the first three things can scale very quickly in any organization. It's the humans that make a difference. So that makes HR the engine and the brake of a company's success. Yeah, and you mentioned IBM, and I think the Economist article cited Diane Gerson, the, the CHRO there. You know, a quite a different sort of profile of a, for a CHRO, a business person at the end of the day, compared to maybe the traditional and prototype um, CHRO of the past. And are you seeing that in some of the organizations you're working with, like AT&T, for example? Yeah, you see you see more business people. I would like to see, uh, along with the chief human resource officer, a chief learning scientist who understands. Because if, if at the end of the day, if you start looking ahead the next five, 10 years, every organization has to be a learning organization. Yeah. Learning has to be part of work. We all need to be more adaptable. And if you had a chief learning scientist in there, they would understand when learning needs to take place and when learning is taking place that you might not be acknowledging, might not be making explicit and might not be socializing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that develops because, that's yeah, uh, I, uh, you can see that the learning, as, you, as we've talked about throughout the, the discussion, really getting more and more important. That's just going to continue, isn't it? So Yeah, and, um, and, and concepts like having, you know, an anthropologist or an ethnographer, you know, uh, Genevieve Bell was at Intel like 20, 30 years ago, and that was considered odd. I can see a lot more Genevieve Bell types out there in organizations because the slowest rate of your change for the rest of your life is right now, and it's only going to accelerate. And so helping humans adapt to technology change or in this moment, a change brought on by a global pandemic or other aspects of globalization is, is also going to be key to success because we're, we're in a massive mental health crisis. We were in one before this happened. We're going to be in one. So having people mentally healthy, understanding how people adapt to change, understanding how people interact with technology and understanding how people learn, that's all the stuff that I think is the future of work. Great. Well, that leads on nicely to the, the last question, which we're asking everyone on the show at the moment. So AI and automation, we've talked a lot about it today, but do you see them as an opportunity or a threat to HR? It's like fire. I think it's like fire. It can cook your food so you don't die from uh, uh, under, undercooked meat or vegetables, uh, but it can burn your house down. So it is all going to be in how we use it. And I see, I'm, I'm a hopeful optimist, so I see uh, the glass more full than empty. And I, I think that in the right hands, like some of the examples we cited in this article of you know, screening better for talent that is uh, more aligned with your culture and more likely to uh, expand their capacity along with the organization. Better diversity. We've been on a terrible job with all forms of diversity, uh, representative, cognitive, neurodiversity. That's going to be the benefit of organizations because the more diversity you have on your team with psychological safety, the more accelerated your learning is. There's actually a, a really good business argument there. So I yep. think that automation of routine tasks, that's fine. Humans have to let go of something and reach up for the next thing. Um, technology taking over tasks that are more dangerous, particularly right now, good thing to do. But we need to put place the human at the center of this and seek for um, better diversity in our organizations and better learning potential so we can release more human potential. I think we're just scratching the surface of what humans can do. 
Heather, I think we could probably continue this discussion all afternoon, but unfortunately, time dictates and we're not allowed to do it. Thank you very much for being a, a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. How can people uh, stay in touch with you and, and find out more about your book and follow you on social media? Sure. So you can find a, a, a lot of stuff about me on heathermcgowan.com. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn, also Heather McGowan. Um, I am a keynote speaker. I'm doing all virtual events lately. Um, the book is The Adaptation Advantage. There's a website, theadaptationadvantage.com, which also shows you all the places you can buy it because Amazon was running out of stock for a while. Um, there'll be an audio book soon, um, and I'm doing regular podcasts to to kind of connect and direct with direct folks right now in this time that I think humans need more uh, optimistic other side of the river viewpoints well i i for one am very much enjoying the book of what i've read so far so i definitely would recommend it to anyone in our space really um and heather thank you very much for being a guest and uh, look forward to hopefully to seeing you in person at some point in the future at a conference um, around the world or, or maybe when i'm in new york or boston so uh, thank you all right great thanks so much take care thanks for listening to this episode of the digital hr leaders podcast I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the My HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the My HR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Jeremy Shapiro about the progress of people analytics in the 10 years since he co-authored the seminal Competing on Talent Analytics article in HBR. We'll also discuss the work his people analytics team have been doing to support Merck & Co. during the pandemic. So don't miss that one. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.